the last time in your life that someone came up and talked to you and said something to you that revealed something about you that you were unaware of before, but after they said it, you knew you had to do something about it? Does that make sense? Has that ever happened to you? Someone comes up to you. Maybe you go into, into your annual review at work and you feel like everything's going great. And all of a sudden, your boss says something to you that you didn't even realize you were doing. And then you start asking around the office and you say, am I like this? And everyone around the office says, yeah, that's exactly how you're like. And all of a sudden, a light bulb goes off in your head and you say to yourself, man, I, I didn't even know this about myself. Or your spouse talks to you or your kids talk to you. And you have this perception about who you are and what you're doing. And then these people come and they talk to you and you realize that other people's perception of you and what you're doing is completely different. I had an experience like that recently. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy doing uh, throughout the week just to keep myself busy and sane is I enjoy uh, running. So I'll run through the neighborhoods and streets of the great thriving metropolis of Burlington, Massachusetts, where we live. And I enjoy doing that. And sometimes my wife and I will run together. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, she came to me and said something that I wasn't expecting. Let me tell you something about myself. When I run, I have a picture in my mind of how I look when I run, okay? It is something along the lines of, uh, something out of like Chariots of Fire, if you've seen that movie. Or it may be just, you know, the, the finals of, of the mile race at the Olympics or something like that. That's how I feel I look when I run. My wife came to me the other day and she said to me, she said, I, I wanna ask you a question. I said, okay. She said, how come when you run, you run so straight up and down? I said, what are you talking about? I don't run straight up and down. She said, yeah, you do. You, you run like straight up and down. Why do you do that? I said, what are you talking about? I don't run straight up and down. I run, you know, like the, the Olympics. I run like chariots of fire. That's how I run. She said, no, you don't. You don't do that at all. In fact, she said to me, when you run, it looks like Forrest Gump. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. I said, what are you talking about? She said, it's true. She said, I said, no one else thinks that. She says, yes, they think that. We've talked about it. I said, what do you mean you're talking about it? I'm like, who have you talked to? She's like, oh, you know, the people, like the family, we talk about it. And, and you know, we ran a 5K in August. Some of those people mentioned it. I'm like, who are all these people? I had no idea this was going on, much less the fact that there were conversations happening behind my back. So what happens? Well, I can tell you what happens. Now, every single time I'm running through the neighborhood, worrying that one of you that lives in Burlington is going to see me out there running and wondering the same thing, all I'm thinking the whole time is lean forward, lean forward, lean forward. <laughs> When's the last time someone talked to you and just brought something to light that you didn't really recognize before, that you didn't really know was going on? Sometimes it's pretty serious, isn't it? Sometimes you walk into a room and your friends and family are gathered and they say something like, listen, you have a problem and we have to talk about it. Sometimes your spouse sits down and says, listen, this is happening in our marriage. This is something that, that you're doing and it needs to change. And I think by and large, many of those times, we're not fully aware of the scope of the issue until someone sits down and talks to us. Could be our boss, could be our spouse, could be a good friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a classmate. 
But when someone takes the initiative to confront us with something, it leaves us in a place where we then have a decision to make, doesn't it? When we're confronted with something like that, it leads us to a place that I'll call conviction, where we all of a sudden have to evaluate whether or not this is true or not. And in any relationship that comes to that point, friendship, marriage, dating, whatever you want to call it, work relationships, they come to this point where there is a confrontation where somebody says, listen, this is happening inside of you and you need to think through this. There's this moment of decision where confronted, it leads to conviction about the issue and then we have to decide which way we're going to respond. Either we're going to say you're right and try to make an effort to change or we're going to look back at them and say you're crazy, I'm not changing anything. And we've probably both said both in our lives, haven't we? You've had times in your life where someone has said something to you, you've been convicted of it, and you've said, I need to work on this. And you've had times in your life, as I have, that someone says something to you, you're convicted about it, and you say, forget them. Because when a relationship hits that moment, it's going to go one of two ways. Either the relationship is going to become closer, or it's going to dissolve. It may not dissolve completely, but it's going to move that direction. In those moments where we're confronted and convicted, when we have a choice to make, we make that choice and our response determines which way the relationship goes. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been through a glo our global outreach celebration. We're coming out of that now and we're walking into a new sermon series. And I can tell you what's going to happen in this sermon series. If it doesn't happen, we're not preaching it right. But what should happen in this sermon series is that we're going to open up some passages in the Bible in the coming eight weeks. And they're all going to be out of a specific group of books. And these are passages in which God is going to confront you and he's going to confront me with some things that happen in our lives that are not in line with what he says we should do. We're going to be in a group of books called the Minor Prophets, and we'll talk about what that is in just a second. But here's what happens in these books. These people speak on behalf of God, and they speak into a specific culture, but they also speak to you and me today. And they're going to point out things in my life, and they're going to point out things in your life that are different than the way that God calls you to live. And just like any other relationship, you and I are going to have a decision to make. And the way we respond to that to that conviction that we're going to feel as we're confronted and then convicted, the way we respond to that will determine if our relationship with God is going to grow closer or if it's going to grow further apart. These are important passages of scripture that we're going to be looking at. And now before we really get into all of that and talk more about that, I want to answer briefly the question, who are the minor prophets? That might be a term that's pretty unfamiliar to you, or you might be someone who has sat in church before, and someone says minor prophets, and you just nod your head, and hmm, you know, because you just have to act like you know what they mean, even though you really have no idea. Let me tell you about the minor prophets a little bit. The minor prophets are a group of books that are, are gathered together at the end of the Old Testament. So if you have a table of contents in front of you, I'd invite you to take a look at it. The Minor Prophets are, the, are books that are listed towards the end of the Old Testament. And here's what happens with these books. Be, one, because of their name, the Minor Prophets, let me assure you that they're not Minor Prophets because their message is like, you know, double-A baseball league level. 
it's not the minor prophets because they're like prophets in training. They're minor prophets simply because of the length of their books. And so you have major prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's just that their books are longer. And the minor prophets, the books are shorter. And what can happen is I was reading one author this week. He said the minor prophets can kind of become the small towns of America that we just skip through and don't really stop and pay any attention to. As someone from Nebraska, I take great offense to that comment, but it's true. It can become those places that we just skip through and we don't really stop and pay much attention to, right? In fact, you go through Psalms and Proverbs, and those are good books. We like the Psalms, the ancient prayers, and we like the Proverbs. That's very quotable, and we can write a proverb and put it on a post-it note, put it on the mirror. It's helpful to us. And then we get to a book like Daniel as we keep moving through, and Daniel's exciting. We're going to talk about it at the women's retreat. When I say we, I mean you are going to talk about it at the women's retreat. You know, but Daniel has the fiery furnace. Daniel has the lion's den. We like those stories, right? There's veggie tales about those stories, so we can interact with those. And then we just see the gospel in the future. Like the gospels are coming up at that point because these books are so short and that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and that's the story of Jesus. Those are important. We want to get to those. And so it's so easy with just a couple flicks of our finger to skip through all these minor prophets because the reality is we're not even sure what it is they're talking about and they're a little weird and a little odd and we're not sure the imagery is not what we're used to. And so they're so easy to skip. They're like the small towns that we just drive through and never stop. But I want to suggest to you that if we'd stop and take a look around, there's a lot of great things happening that we can learn from and that we need to hear. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to stop and take a look around at what these people are saying. So when you get to names and you see them in the list like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are the books that are so easy to skip. In fact, it's so much easier to go to Matthew, right? Matthew's a name we understand. I know a Matthew. You know a Matthew. Talks about Jesus. That's much easier to understand. I don't know anyone named Haggai. Maybe you do. But those are unfamiliar to us. It's easier just to rifle through them. But we're going to stop. And we're going to see what they have to say. There's some important things there. In fact, the prophets, excuse me, the prophets in the Old Testament, they do three things for us. And there are three important things that they do. The minor prophets are no different. The minor prophets are going to do three things for you and three things for me that we need to hear and that we need to walk through. The prophets were people that spoke on behalf of God. They took God's word to the people. I don't know what you think of when you think of prophet. Maybe you think of that guy that sits on the street corner with the sandwich board and tells, yells at everybody. Or maybe you think of the guy on television that predicted Jesus' second coming four times and, and he promised you the fifth time he'll get it right if you send him some money. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of prophet. But prophet in the Old Testament is something very specific. This is the person who speaks to the people on behalf of God. And prophets do three things. The first thing that they do is prophets confront the culture. It's the first thing they do. Every time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, prophets confront the culture. Did everyone get this sheet when you walked in? The timeline sheet? Take a look at this. How many of you see this kind of timeline sheet and this is your thing? Raise your hand. Let me see you. I know you're in the room. This is your thing, right? You love this thing, right? These are the nerds, right? I'm in your group. We love this stuff. 
Some of you look at this and your head spins, but let me just tell you what's happening here. In 1000 BC, David becomes, roughly David becomes king over Israel. You remember David, right? David and Goliath, we know David, right? Even if you didn't really grow up in church, you probably heard of David. David had a son named Solomon. Solomon became king over Israel after David. And then when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over, something happens, and that is the people of God split into two kingdoms. This is really a key thing to understand if you're going to understand the Old Testament and how many of the books are written. The kingdom splits, and there is a northern kingdom Israel and a southern kingdom Judah. Hang with me for one minute. This is important. Even though there's two kingdoms, and you can see this is the time period the minor prophets are speaking into. You can see where they're listed there and to whom they are speaking, either the north or the south or Nineveh or Edom. The time period in which they're speaking, there are two kingdoms, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, but both kingdoms have the same issue. They are, by and large, with the rulers that are in charge of them and the kings that are over them, walking away from God. They are going in the wrong direction. And they're living in this world, the prophets are living in this world where they can see, if you look on that map, that both kingdoms are eventually going to be overtaken by some pretty evil people. Both kingdoms are going to go into exile. The northern kingdom, Israel, is going to go into exile under the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom... Judah is going to go into exile under the Babylonians, and the prophets can see it coming. They live in a world where the good people, the people that are still staying true to God, the people that are trying to live the way God calls us to live, are being unfairly punished for that, and it seems like the evil people, the people against God, are winning. That's the world they live in. They live in a world where they look around and they see all sorts of unfairness and injustice and things out of line with God's word, and they have to speak into it on behalf of God. I want to suggest to you that part of the reason I think the Minor Prophet's message is so important to you and to me is because we live in that kind of world today, don't we? You and I live in that kind of world where it seems like the people who are doing what God wants us to do are the ones who are ostracized and criticized, and those who are walking away from God are the ones who get all the good stuff and the rewards. We're walking into a world where we can look into it and see all sorts of injustice and unfairness and things that just aren't right and in line with God's word. And that's the world into which the minor prophets speak, and in many ways it's the world we live in today. Abraham Heschel, the, the Jewish rabbi and, and author, he said, the prophet is the, is the kind of person that sees injustice that everybody else is okay with and has to speak into it. The, the prophet is the one who sees things out of line with God's word, and most people are just okay with living life. Most people are okay just going on, but the prophet is not okay. The prophet has to say something into it. The prophet is not okay with something that's middle of the road. The prophet is not okay with something that's approximate. The prophet is a black or white person. Either you're with God or you're not, and there's no middle ground. And so the prophet speaks into those places, and we need to hear what they have to say. So the prophet confronts culture, confronts us, confronts you and me. 
And I promise you, over the next few weeks, there are going to be Sundays, if you show up, the prophet's going to say something about the way that you're living or the way that I'm living, and it's going to confront us with the reality that we are living lives that are different than the life that God calls us to lead. We have to deal with that. The second thing the prophet does is not only do they confront culture, but they also call people back to God. There is a hopeful part of any prophetic, prophetic message. It's not just condemnation. It's not just you're a bad person. It's something in your life needs to change, so come back to God. And the third thing that they do is that they foretell comfort for some and condemnation for others. Comfort for some and condemnation for others. So this is what the prophet does. Confronts people with the, with the, with the inequities in their life between what God says and how they're living calls them back to God, and then says, at the end of the day, some of you are going to receive comfort from God, and some of you are going to receive his judgment. In fact, I ask you to turn to Nahum chapter 1, because I think Nahum, this prophet, says it very succinctly, succinctly in verses 7 and 8, what it looks like, this word of comfort and condemnation. This is a Excuse me, this is what he says. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is a theme that runs throughout the minor prophets, that the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Comfort for some, condemnation for others. In fact, the reason we are calling this series Overwhelmed is because of this message that the prophets give. That in a world where we can tend to be overwhelmed with things, there is this message that for those who take refuge in God, at the end, you will be overwhelmed with his grace and mercy. But for those who are God's adversaries, you will be overwhelmed with his judgment. And so the big question then for you and me is how can I make sure that I am one who takes refuge in God and not one who is God's adversary? Who is the one then who takes refuge in God and who is the one who is his adversary? That is the big question that you and I have to answer. And here's what I would say to you. You know those moments in your life when you have confrontation and it leads you to conviction? And in your relationships at that moment and in that time, your response will determine if that relationship grows closer together or if it grows further apart? It's the same thing in our relationship with God. We come to places, and we've all had this happen in our lives. If you've spent any time in church, if you've talked to someone who's passionate about following Jesus, if you've opened up this book and read it in your life, this has happened to you. You've come to a place where something God says confronts the way you live, and it brings you to a place of conviction, and you have a response to make. You can either in that moment respond with confession or respond with contempt to God. One determines if you take refuge in God. The other determines if you're God's adversary. And we've all seen it happen in our own life. You've seen it happen in your life. You're watching people close to you make these decisions all the time. We get confronted with the way we live. It brings conviction. 
For some of us, we might turn and say, God, I am sorry that I'm living this way. Help me to turn my life around. Help me to live the way that you call me to live. When the, excuse me, when the prophet talks about taking refuge in God, I believe that's what that looks like. Some of us would in that moment respond with contempt. This book is outdated. How do we even know God is real? Who is he to tell us how to live? This doesn't make any sense. I am happy and I'm not going to change anything. And we respond to that message with contempt. Well, I can tell you that the prophetic message would tell you that you're responding in a way that makes you God's adversary. And whether you choose to believe it or not, the word of the prophet to you is that if you're willing to respond with confession, you will be overwhelmed with the grace and mercy of God. But if you respond with contempt, at some point you will be overwhelmed with the judgment of God. Now, none of us like confrontation. We don't like this to happen to us. I don't like things revealed in me where I'm falling short and not living up to standards. I don't even like finding out I run weird, much less something that's important. And you don't either. But let me tell you, if we're going to live as God calls us to live, we need this to happen in our lives. It reminds me of a story I've heard of Abraham Lincoln and his brother-in-law, a man by the name of John Johnston. John Johnston uh, <coughs> was a kind of guy who got himself into financial trouble often, and he would write Honest Abe a letter when he got into debt, and he would say, you know, Abe, brother, can you help me out? And many times Abraham Lincoln would give him the money he needed. But there was one time in 1850 that Abraham Lincoln said enough was enough. And rather than help out his brother-in-law, he confronted him. And he wrote him this letter. Listen to what he says. Dear Johnston, your request for $80, I do not think it best to comply with now. At the various times when I have helped you, you have said to me, we can get along very well now. But in a very short time, I find you in the same difficulty again. Now, this can only happen by some defect in your conduct. There's a line for you. <laughs> no, this is only happening because there's something messed up with you, Johnson. And I think I know what it is. You're not lazy, but you are an idler. I doubt whether since I saw you, you have done a good whole day's work in any one day. This habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty. It is vastly important to you and still more to your children that you break this habit. You are now in need of some money. And what I propose is that you shall go to work tooth and nail for somebody who will give you money for it and to secure you a fair reward for your labor. I promise you, listen to what he's willing to do, that for every dollar you will between this and the first day of May get for your own work, I will give you one more dollar. Now, if you do this, you will soon be out of debt. And what is better, you will have a habit that will keep you from getting in debt again. But if I should now clear you out of debt next year, you would be just as deep as ever. Affectionately, your brother, Abraham Lincoln. I don't know how his brother-in-law, John Johnson, responded to this letter. But he certainly has a choice, doesn't he? Here is confrontation 
that in some way is going to lead to conviction, whether or not this man is, is actually putting forth good effort, whether or not he is doing all he can to provide for his wife and children, I'm sure there's conviction there. I can imagine if I got a letter like that, I'd have some feelings about it. But he has a choice to make, right? He can either accept that this is reality and work towards a solution, or he can respond with contempt and write a letter to Mary Todd Lincoln and say that brother of yours is a stubborn, boneheaded loser, and I don't want anything to do with him anymore. Those are the responses that we have. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. And many of us find ourselves in that place where we have to decide. We hear these things whether it's from someone who follows Jesus or whether it's from the Bible itself or whether it's some preacher on the stage uh, screaming and yelling and trying to tell us something, we hear these things where we are confronted with some truth about ourselves, that the way we're living is out of line with the way that God calls us to live and it brings conviction. And you know what? Sometimes we respond with compassion, confession and we say, God, I'm so sorry, help me to change. That's when we take refuge in God. We're promised his mercy and grace. But sometimes, many of us, and you might be in the room right now this morning, there's some place in your life where you are actively responding in your life with contempt to God. God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it my way. I don't care what you say about relationship. I don't care what you say about money. I don't care what you say about my heart. I don't care what you say about the things that I should take into my mind and with my eyes. I don't care what you say about the way that I should be living. I'm going to do it my way. Do you know what the scary thing is? Many times in these books, do you know who God's adversaries are? The Israelites themselves. God's people themselves. Because they have started to live not like God's people, but like the culture, and God's calling them back. So just because we call ourselves a Christian, have a Jesus fish on our car, and show up to church on Sunday mornings doesn't mean we're not living in some way in our lives as God's adversary. I have places in my life where I need to be confronted and called back to God, and so do you. And the Israelites did too. The amazing thing about God is to his people, he always showed great compassion and mercy and always through the exile and through everything else called his people back to himself. He'll do the same for you. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward as we prepare to close this morning. And as they come, I want you to think about this. What we're talking about this morning what the minor prophets are gonna do for you and for me, confront us, convict us, call us to a decision. It's really the essence of what the entire gospel message of Jesus Christ is about, isn't it? It's really the essence of what the story of Jesus is all about. Because we have, in a very real sense, just like Abraham Lincoln's brother worked ourselves into a deep debt. And that is by understanding what it is that God calls us to do and actively in our life doing the opposite, whether we knowingly do it or whether we unknowingly do it, when our life is out of line with what God calls us to do, when God calls us to a standard and we do something else, 
The Bible would call that sin. And all of us have sinned. And as we've done it, we've dug ourselves into a deep debt between ourselves and God. And even without us asking, God said, I'm going to do something about that debt. And that he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty that I can't pay myself and you can't pay myself. But there is a response that has to happen. You see, God's grace is freely given. But just like in that letter, it requires some sort of response from us. And that response will determine either whether we experience the compassion and grace and mercy of God or whether we go our own way and set ourselves up to ultimately experience the judgment of God. That's not a popular message, but it's the truth. all of us come to this place in our life where we realize there are things that are going on that God would say need to change. We're confronted, we're convicted. My question to you this morning is will you be humble enough to respond in confession and receive the grace and mercy of God that is yours through Jesus Christ or will you continue to respond in contempt Continue to position yourself as an adversary to God rather than one who would take refuge in him. This is how the New Testament puts the promise of God. It's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John writes, if we say we have no sin, if we get confronted and convicted and we look back at God and respond with contempt, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, maybe if you're here for the first, maybe you're here this morning and for the first time this would be a time that you would put yourself in the position of responding to conviction when it comes to God with confession and finding refuge in him. Maybe you followed Jesus Christ for a long time. There's still places in my life and yours where we need to be confronted and convicted and respond with confession. We haven't even gotten into specifics yet. We'll do that in the coming weeks. But maybe already there is a still small voice speaking to your heart and in your mind, reminding you of that thing that you know is in your life that is off base when it comes to following God. That thing you know that you're participating in, that thing you know that you do, that, 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 uh, that feeling that you have in your heart, that grudge that you hold, that emotion that you embrace, that thing that's out of line with what God would call you to do, you know that it's there and you have been responding with contempt to God in light of that thing. If you want to experience the overwhelming grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, then you need to respond in confession and contrition. 
In just a moment, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. And some of the leaders of our church are going to position themselves at the front of the sanctuary. As we sing these final songs, this is your opportunity. If there's something that's heavy on your heart this morning, something you'd like someone to pray with for you, then please go to our elders, go to our leaders, and they will pray with you for that thing. But if there's something that God's dealing with you on this morning and you want to spend some time alone, just you and God, these altars are open. Come forward, kneel here, and talk to God. You may have never done that before. That may sound completely weird to you. I'm telling you, something happens and God does work when we respond to him. You want to feel God work in your life? You want to be in a place where you move from contempt to confession, from adversary to refuge, from judgment to grace? Then come and do that work this morning. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that ultimately your grace and your mercy is not dependent on what we do, but Lord, it's dependent on who you are as our loving God and Father. Lord, there are those places in our lives where your word and your spirit brings, brings confrontation and it brings conviction and we have an opportunity to make a decision. Lord, I pray for us that we would be the kind of people that respond with confession and contrition, that we go and find refuge in you rather than responding with contempt and digging our heels in and becoming adversarial to you. Even as we respond this morning, God, in confession, would your grace and your mercy overwhelm us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.